another thing to try it yourself, right? You're told what to do, you're shown what to do, but you try it yourself. In my driver's ed class years ago, I was, I was adding this up, this was like uh, 26 years ago, I took driver's ed. And um, there were four of us in our class. Yeah, I know, I'm getting old. There were four of us, but I'm the youngest of my siblings, so I feel good because I just saw my siblings, and they're quite a bit older than me. So, you know, I'm in my 40s, they're all in their 50s, that's a cool thing that I'm still younger than them. Well, there were four of us in our driver's ed class, and, and you know how the scene goes. One of the guys, the, the instructor was a coach, and, uh, you know, just all the cliches about a coach, just add that to him, and you got this guy who's the instructor. Now, two of us were real far ahead in this whole uh, driver's ed thing because I had been driving since I was 12. My dad taught me to drive when I was 12. I was driving all over the place. The other guy had been driving for about three years. One guy was, he was an okay driver, and one guy was totally, totally lost. His name was Matthew Waite, and um, he was really intelligent, but really, really uncoordinated, gross motor skills, those types of things. You did not ever associate, you know, coordination with Matthew. And uh, <laughs> his lack of physical skills showed up in an alarming way whenever he, it was his turn to drive. You know, they would pack three of you in the back seat, and one would be in the front seat with the driver, and, and uh, Matthew, he just could not figure out that, you know, one foot goes on the accelerator, one foot goes on the brakes, and then, you know, the hands, when you got two feet and two hands going, he couldn't figure out what he was supposed to do. And when we knew we were in trouble was when it was his turn to drive. We're in this huge Walmart-sized parking lot, all right? This is the high school parking lot, but nobody's there, no cars in the parking lot. And so he kind of slams the... the uh, the, the gear shift into drive and he, he lurches forward and we get to the edge of the parking lot and luckily, you know, he's got one foot on, he's just start and stop and it's just, it's pretty Im- impressive so far. Well, when we knew we were in serious trouble was when coach said to him, Matthew, I want you to turn left. And so we were going to go on to the, the one major highway in Borger, Texas. We were about to turn onto the one major highway. And so Matthew turns on his left blinker and he turns the wheel all the way to the left and, and when it was appropriate that we could go across the lane, he smashes on the gas and we do this whole donut and a half thing. And then he finally slams, you know, the, the coach slams his brake on. And I think he said something like, Matthew, exactly what was going through your mind whenever you disregarded all of my verbal instructions? No, he was a coach. You can imagine what he said. I think his speech had a lot more four letter words in it. And I was going, Ugh! you know, as we were thinking we we're going to die. Now, I don't remember a whole lot else about that day. What I do remember is that we never had to drive with Matthew again. Coach pulls me and the other guy because we're both football players. He pulls us out. He lets us drive on our own. Matthew, I don't know if he ever got his driver's license. Now, Matthew was smart. He had he had seen people drive all of his life. His dad was the chief of police in my hometown. He had read about driving, but he'd never driven himself. And it was just totally different whenever he got behind the wheel. He had no experience with that. Well, we're in this series and we're talking about hearing from God. And it's one thing to read about folks in the Bible hearing from God. It's another thing to actually know people today who say, I've heard from God. And then it's something totally different whenever we try to hear from God personally. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Now, if you could pick any one person from the Bible, you know, if we had this hall of fame of prayers from the Bible, someone you know had their prayers answered, and you could just kind of talk to them and figure out from them how to pray, who would it be? Who would you choose from the Bible? Say it a little louder. This isn't junior high Sunday school. Okay. Jesus. Thank you. Jesus was the one that prayed the most, and and so we're going to try to study a little bit of his life. And see, that's what his followers did. His followers had watched him. They'd seen him do all kinds of stuff. And so they began to connect his power with his prayer life. And here's what one of them said, Luke 11, 
1 says this. When Jesus had finished praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his followers to pray. Now, Jesus' disciples, his followers, had been going around with him for a while now. They had seen him heal people with leprosy. They'd seen him raise people from the dead, other sick people. He healed them by a touch. He healed blind people. He healed one uh, child from a distance of 38 miles away. They knew this guy had power. They'd seen him calm the storms whenever they were in a raging storm out on the Sea of Galilee. They knew he had power. And they recognized that never in history had anyone had the type of power this human being had. And so they began to connect his prayer life with his power because they knew that Jesus always was spending time praying. If you couldn't find Jesus, where was he? He was praying. And so they began to connect that. And so they questioned him about prayer. And I want you to realize the very first thing. Okay, we got the the number one person in the Hall of Fame of prayer in the Bible. And when his disciples say, teach us to pray, the very first thing that he brings up about prayer is location. He mentions location. And and I'm thinking, okay, what's the big deal about that? Well, let's see. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I assure you that is all the reward they will ever get. Well, what are the locations he mentions? He mentions synagogues, that's church, and street corners. Now, why did people like to pray in those locations? I don't know if you've ever... I went to Baylor University. And when I was at Baylor, several times we would have preachers come, not, not from like the university or university sanctioned or anything. They'd come and they'd get this little box and they'd set it up and they'd start yelling out that you're sinners and you're going to rot in hell and you're having sex. And we just gathered around them just because, you know, we wanted to heckle them and just have a good time with them. But they would be yelling and, and then they would pray, oh, dear God, have mercy on these people. And we're thinking, there's some idiots right there. Because we weren't impressed with them. We weren't even saying how spiritual they were. But people back in Jesus' day like to wear the long flowing robes and they like to quote Scripture and they like to pray these big old flowery prayers so that people would say, Dude, that guy must know God. And Jesus says, if that's the only reason you're praying to impress people, guess what? You get your reward. That's all the reward you're ever going to get because Jesus is not going to hear a prayer like that. Now, I just want you all to think about that. I want you to think about, I watch VeggieTales, or I used to a lot, and, and so they would have people practice that. So I want you to say, he's so spiritual. And you don't even have to say spiritual, you can just say spiritual. All right, that's the East Texas, all right? So that's what we're going to do. Everybody say it, ready? He's so spiritual. Now, can you imagine seeing somebody, hearing them pray and go, oh, wow, he's so spiritual. Do it again. He's Jesus says, that's all the reward you're going to get if you're trying to impress people. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pray, I don't want to just hear people say that because that doesn't get me anything. That doesn't help me with my finances. That doesn't help me if I'm ill. It doesn't help me if, if I need wisdom for the future. No offense, but I need somebody when I pray that's more powerful than you are. And you need somebody that's more powerful than I am. You need to be talking to God. And so the first thing Jesus says is, you know, you've got to be careful about where you pray. Because that's going to determine your reward. Now, in verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your father, your father secretly. Then your father who knows all secrets will reward you. All right, so the first point is get by yourself to pray. Get by yourself to pray. So location, he's saying wherever you need to get so that you're alone. 
You need to have a spot that you can go to where you'll be alone. And to fully understand this, you've got you to gotta think about marriage. Marriage was created by God to be a mirror um, of a relationship of what He wants with you. So you think about this. When a husband and wife want to connect intimately, they go into the room, they close the door. When, when is a marriage consummated in God's eyes? When is it established in God's eyes? Is it when the, the minister says, I pronounce you husband, by the authority of God and the laws of this state, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Is that when God says, oh, you're married? No. It's when the husband and wife go into their inner room, close the door, and they connect physically. That's when God says, that couple is married. He says, they're joined together as one. And that's why God says, let no man separate what God has joined together. All right? Now, if you think about that imagery... God knows that if you go into a room and you close the door and you're intentionally carving out time for Him, intimate time for Him, He says He's going to bless you. And there's going to be a reward. It's just not necessarily what you think of as a reward. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Matthew 6, 7. He says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered only by repeating their words again and again. God isn't moved by the volume, by the quantity, or even the quality of your prayers. God's not impressed with that. Can you imagine if Janie and I go out on a date, and we're sitting at the table, and I'm saying, Oh, Janie, I praise you, I praise you, I praise you, I praise you, I praise you. You are far above all women. You're high up to the sky above all women. I thank you, I praise you, I praise you, I glorify you, Janie, I praise you! What's my wife going to do? first thing she's going to do is ask the waiter to check my drink for alcohol to see if maybe, you know, I've been sipping something funky. And then she's going to say, you praise me for what? This actually happened. We're driving home from Thanksgiving this weekend. And, you know, the kids are watching their DVD movies in the back seat, and, and it's just quiet Janie time. She loves when we go on trips because her love language is quality time. And so we just talk and we hang out. And so we're driving along, coming back from Dallas. And I just, you know, just... Thoughts kind of overwhelmed me, and I reached over, and I grabbed your hand, and I looked in her eyes as I'm driving 70 miles an hour, you know, which is probably not the brightest thing to do. And I said, I'm so glad you're mine. And she goes, really? Being the tender, romantic soul that I am, I go, nah, I'm just being nice. Well, she busts out laughing. I mean, you've got to understand, this is, this is just our relationship. We both start laughing. I'm like... I'm not going to tell you I'm glad you're mine if I'm not really, I'm not making it up. But she wants to know why. Don't just tell me you praise me, you praise me, you praise me, you praise me. God's not impressed with the amount of times you say I praise you in a prayer. God wants to know why. Give him some, some, some specifics. That's not real easy to say. Give him some specifics. He's not impressed with verbiage. He's impressed when you carve out time for him. Just like your spouse is. It means a great deal to him. Matthew 6, 8 says, don't be like them because your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Be like whom? The babblers, the people standing on the street corners, the people who use lots of words and loud words to try to impress God and others. Why are we not supposed to be like them? Because your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Prayer isn't about asking God for stuff and telling him all that you need. Jesus says, I already know all of that, so let's not spend all of our time on that. You think about the amount of time we generally spend. Most of the time, it's with our list. You know, throw that list out there and it might run from here to Jacksonville. This is what I need, God. Wish you'd hurry up and do it. And then you run out and God's not impressed with that. 
Jesus says, instead, let's focus on something more important, something deeper. He says, I'm not a genie. I'm not a Santa that you bring all those requests to. He says, I want to give you something much deeper. I want to give you a better perspective and I want to give you peace. Those are the rewards that God promises. The reward is that inner peace when God says yes, when God says no, or when God says nothing. Um, God knows that you're going to become what you're committed to. Your commitments can either develop you or they can destroy you. But either way, your commitments will define your life. Tell me what you're committed to, and I'll tell you what you'll be in 10, 15, 20 years if you make it that long. Do you have this, this progression? I want you to look at this set of pictures here, and I want you to tell me what this person is committed to. Methamphetamines. This actually comes off of the U.S. Drug Administration uh, website. This lady was arrested ten times in a nine-year span from like 1980 to 1989. And these are her mug shots consecutively. So it goes this way and then it comes down here and it goes this way. 1989 is this last picture down here in the, in the left-hand corner. She died about three or four months after that. Never having gotten off of methamphetamines. Now... See, I could, I could look at her life and I could tell you if something didn't change, I could tell you what she was going to end up like because she was committed to this drug and the drug robbed her of her life. Now, tell me what you're committed to and I'll tell you what you'll become in a few years. God knows that your commitments define you. So when you go into your room, and you close the door and you spend time with God, something amazing happens. Second Corinthians 318. We can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him and reflect his glory even more. The point is that Jesus is making this to his followers. And what he's saying is you can you can never become more like God in your spiritual life. Is if all you do is if all your spiritual life is public, you've got to have some secret time. The secret to a close relationship with God is some secret time with God. Not only will you not hear God if you're not spending solitary time with him, but you'll never develop the family resemblance either. Because what this verse says, when I spend consistent time with God, he makes me look like Jesus Christ. And so you think about the people that have done the most good in the world for God. They're the people that have spent the most alone time with God. And, and here's what he's saying. We become mirrors to reflect those that we hang out with. So if you spend a lot of time with people like this lady that's, that's in the drug scene, I'm not saying she's a bad person. I'm just saying she made some bad decisions and her commitments robbed her of her life. But I bet you could have looked at the people that she hung out with and you could have seen in the mirror the same type of person that she was. You become like those people that you hang out with. And so if you want to look like God, what you've got to do is you spend time with him. And this verse says we become like mirrors. We begin to reflect him. And, and a lot of times there's all kinds of sin and junk in our lives. And as we spend secret time with God, he begins to remove that. And so the light then reflects off into someone and they see just a little bit of God in me. And he takes more. The more time I spend with him and the light reflects and people start to say, you're like God. I want to get to know this person that you're hanging out with. So you've got to be real careful, the people that you hang out with. God is an incredibly powerful light. And God wants to change you to look like his son so that you have a family resemblance. And the more time you spend with God, the brighter his light shines on you and reflects to others. You will become what you're committed to. And the whole goal of this thing is friendship with God. The goal of this series is that more of you will become friends with God. 
Psalm 25, 14. I told y'all, those of you who took 201 last week, this is my memory verse. And I've been trying to work it into this series. Here it is. Psalm 25, 14. Friendship with God is reserved for those who reverence Him. With them alone, He shares the secrets of His promises. Do you want to hear the secrets of God? Then you've got to become a friend of God. How do you become a friend of God? You spend time with Him. You have deep conversations with Him. You go into a room, close the door behind you, and you spend some secret time with God. Now, let me give you a little bit of encouragement because how many of you have children, preschoolers? All right. My wife, you know, at one time we had three kids that, that age. We have three kids that are older now. And so it's a little bit easier on Janie now. But when they were all preschoolers, they demand so much of your time. Susanna Wesley um, had 18 children. That's not the encouraging part. I want to encourage you in just a minute. She had 18 children and two of her children have literally changed the course of history. One of them was John Wesley, and he actually founded the Methodist Church. He started the Methodist Church. The other one was Charles Wesley, and he wrote hundreds of hymns. If you ever look in a hymn book, you'll see his name over and over again because he wrote hundreds of hymns. They, they uh, attributed their love for God to their mother's passion for God. Eighteen children, what would she do? Every day, sometime in the afternoon, she would go into her chair and she would sit down and she would take her long apron and she would pull it up over her head. And the children knew you do not mess with God, with with God, with mom when she's under that apron with God or you will die. That's what she did. She pulled it up. Don't mess with mom. She's praying. She's talking to God. When she comes out, she'll fix your problems. So you I don't care how you do it. Whether you pull an apron over your head, whether you go to a dark room. I've heard of guys that in their, their garages, they put up these, these black curtains, you know, kind of like this stuff. And they just had a little place where they went in. And, the, you know, I, that's a little spooky to me to get in some black hole in my garage um, because I might not ever come out. But however you do it, we've got to find some time. It could be your car when you're driving to work. That could be your time. My kids know that when I get up, I'm going to take my shower because I'm going to get fully awake like we learned in 201. I'm going to get my cup of coffee because I like to have a cup of coffee with God. And I'm going to sit down in my recliner. Everything I need is right there. My kids know that's my time with God. And don't jack with me until I'm finished with my time with God because I'm going to be a much better daddy and I'll be much more pleasant when I've had my time with God. The most effective time for me to do it is early in the morning. I get up before everybody else is up and it's just a sweet time to hang out with God. And it gives me perspective that I do not have otherwise. Because I can be kind of high strung and God calms me down, slows my RPMs down and he makes me look more like Jesus. So whatever you do, find some way, because this is what Jesus did. Luke 516 says this. Jesus often slipped away to be alone so he could pray. Circle the words often. It was a regular habit in Jesus life. He knew that he needed this to be a regular part of his life if, if he was going to sense God's voice and if he was going to have God's power. And Jesus was God. If Jesus, God's son, needs to hang out with God on a regular basis, how much more do you and I need to hang out with God on a regular basis? So the first step is secret time with God. But what do you do when you're alone with God? That's the second step. Second step is focus my attention on God. Watch this. We'll get there.
Kachi. what God wants to tell you every day. We don't like silence a lot of times, do we? It makes us nervous. And God speaks in a still, small voice, so we've got to be still. So it means focusing my mind, my thoughts, my attention on God. In many religions, the idea of worship is you kind of put your mind in neutral and you try to attach to this cosmic consciousness or this universal mind or something other. Um, But God's not like that. God wants your mind to be in tune to Him. He wants your mind. He wants your mind focused on Him, and He's going to focus on you. Have you ever seen someone who's zoned out? You're talking to them, and if you have children, you see this quite a bit. You're talking to them, and they're just kind of looking right through you, and you're going, Hello, I'm over here. And sometimes you have to pop them, you know, uh, just to wake them up, or you have to focus their attention on you. That's really annoying. I think a lot of times God's just kind of going, Yo, I'm right here. If you'll slow your RPMs down enough, I'll tell you all you need to know. But you've got to listen. Because He's not going to shout at you. Now, attention is so valuable, we don't just give it away. We say we what? We pay attention. And God wants us to pay attention if we're going to hear His voice. Psalm 139, 1-3, You have looked deep into my heart, Lord, and You know all about me. You know when I'm resting or when I'm working. You notice everything I do and everywhere I go. God pays constant attention to you. He never stops thinking about you. I've had children. As a matter of fact, we were in Arlington and we, when we go up there, we stay with some friends from our church when we were there back 10 years ago. And uh, we drive by the high school that I used to go to all the time. And that high school was unbelievably rich. North Arlington, Lamar High School. And, and the students, when you drove by the parking lot, it was like a showroom. There was actually a kid that came to our youth groups um, a few times. His dad owned one of the largest car dealerships in, in the Metroplex. And so he drove the latest everything. This kid, actually, his dad built him a house, a separate house, so that he could live there during high school. So his dad had this mansion and he had, you know, about a 1,500 square foot apartment thing over here with his own garage and all that stuff. And the kid had no relationship with his dad. And I know a lot of those kids, they would say, you know, my parents... They don't ever listen to me. They don't ever hang out with me. They buy me things in order to have a relationship with me. Were those kids happy? No. Why? Because their parents never paid attention. They wanted attention. You see, whenever you pay attention to someone, you're giving them the gift of your time. I can make more money, but I can't make more time. So when I give someone my time, that is a more valuable gift than my money. I need to pay attention to God And then He gives me the ability to pay attention to my family and those around me. But too often we're just focusing on ourselves. Romans 8, 7 says this. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores God. That person ignores who God is and what He is doing. And then the Bible turns around just a few chapters later in Romans and tells us how to combat this selfishness. Romans 12, 2, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. So focusing on God is the opposite of focusing on myself. And I've got to make that choice 
who we're going to focus on. You've got to make that choice. Are we going to focus on ourselves, on the world's way or on God? Well, how do you choose to focus on God? Matthew 6, 6. You have it on your listening guide. Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place. I want you to circle that word place. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply, circle simply, and honestly, circle honestly, as you can manage. So you find a secluded place and you're just totally yourself. You're honest and you're simple before God. This says the focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense His grace. Now, you'll be much more likely to spend time with God if you have a place that you meet with Him on a regular basis. It can be anywhere. And if you'll just go there and not try to pretend that you've got it all together, God knows already. Don't put a mask on when you go talk to God. Just be honest. Read the Psalms. If you don't know how to pray, read the Psalms. One of my favorites is when David says, Oh my God, will you forsake me forever? I've prayed that before to God. Just read, just held up my Bible and said, That's how I feel. And if you read through the Psalms, David will pour out his heart to God. And always by the end, he's come back and he'll say, But where else am I going to go? I'm going to trust you, God. God can handle your honesty. What God doesn't like is, is us being fake. You don't like it when someone's fake with you either. So let's not be fake with God. Just come simply and honestly. If you focus on getting to know God better, He'll take care of making you look more spiritual. You don't have to do it yourself. And focusing on God offers some incredible benefits for you. Isaiah 26.3 says, You, Lord, give perfect peace to those who keep their purpose firm and put their trust in You. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had in the last couple of months. People telling me to my face or sometimes writing it on the card, I want to know my purpose in life. And that begins with listening to God, spending time with God. One of my friends, we were at lunch a couple of months ago, and he goes, man, I just got to find my purpose. This guy's an incredibly wealthy man. He's very successful in his business. If I were to mention his name, you would know who he was. And he says, I don't know why I'm here on earth. He's not been spending a whole lot of time with God because God will show you. He says, if you want to keep, if you want to have peace, you've got to keep your purpose firm by focusing on God, listening to God. And he'll tell you he's not going to keep it a secret. Now, what happens when you focus on yourself? You get worry, you get insecurity, anxiety, guilt, fear, discouragement. But when you focus on God, he says, I'll give you peace. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. I'll give you security, confidence, gratitude, and love. Now, the first thing I've got to do is I've got to withdraw to a quiet place, a secluded place. I've got to get by myself with God. And the second thing I've got to do is focus my attention on God. I pay attention to God. Now, there's one more thing I need to mention real quickly. You cannot hear from God unless you know God. He's not going to talk to you if you're not a member of His family. Everybody here is in one of three relationships with God. Either recognition, acquaintance, or friendship. There are some of you that have come to the church, and, and matter of fact, Jeremiah, a couple weeks ago when he came, I said, dude, I have seen you somewhere before, did not know his name, but I recognized him because I'd seen him around town. I recognize you. What's your name? Well, now I've talked to Jeremiah a little bit, and I know Jer Jeremiah a little bit more, and so he's moved from just, I recognize him, to now he's an acquaintance. And over the months ahead, I look forward to getting to know him better, where he becomes a friend. You see the difference? Every one of you here is in one of those stages with God. Some of you would say, well, you know, I believe there's a God. That's why I'm here. But I don't know Him. 
I just recognize that there must be a God because this world doesn't make sense if there's not a God. Some of you would say, I'm, a, I'm an acquaintance with God. I met Him a long time ago, but we're distant acquaintances. And some of you say, you know what? I really believe I'm at the stage in my life where I'm a friend of God. Where, where I trust Him and I listen to Him and I go to Him for wisdom. And so everybody's in one of those relationships and I, want, I would like for you to think about where you are. So take your registration card, fill that out just real quickly if you've, if you've